Um, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. On that day when evening had come, he, that is Jesus, said to them, the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. There was great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. Last week, I did not expect to read about the tragic deaths of Kobe and John Bryant, along with seven others who perished in that helicopter crash. And I know that much has been written about this tragedy. In one article, a journalist wrote something that um, I, I still remember. It's, but here's what the journalist said. It was a national shock. A 41-year-old father, his 13-year-old daughter, and seven of their friends and colleagues were suddenly snatched from this life. Fans in L.A. with nothing to do with their grief spontaneously gathered at Staples Center where they wept. You could see them grappling with the question, why am I sobbing at the death of someone I never met? What is it that he meant to me? How did a stranger reach into me so? And part of their grief was how life can so quickly turn on a dime. Nothing is guaranteed. The journalist said, you know not the hour. Isn't that true? Just how quickly clear weather can become stormy weather and life can turn on a dime. Life's frailty and brevity bring anxiety. And like those fans in L.A., you know, some just don't know what to do with that. Who do you cry out to in your storms? And can that person help? And I don't know everybody in this room here, but I know this about everybody. You're either coming out of a storm, you're in a storm, or you're heading for a storm, right? But storm it is, 
and we know storms. And we pray over those storms every staff meeting and every elders meeting. And this past week, it was front and back, one page, single-spaced, small font. Storms about health, storms about our homes, storms about our jobs, storms about uncertainty. But they're storms, and they're real storms. When Mark wrote these verses, Nero was the emperor, and Mark lived in Rome. And this gospel was first written for the spiritual community in Rome. And Nero was just absolutely insane. And Christians became torches as he tortured them. And it's like that church in the first century was in a boat and there was a storm. We know storms. Again, who do you cry out to in your storm? And can that person truly help? Our text today tells about an unexpected weather event that came crashing upon the disciples. This fearful storm produced fearful disciples. And Mark recorded this as a gift, an eyewitness account. If you dig into the background about Mark's gospel and Mark and how he got his information, you find out that the apostle Peter was his primary source. So Peter, his eyewitness experiences with Jesus become codified in the gospel of Mark. Simon Peter is the first of the apostles mentioned in Mark's gospel. And he's the last of the apostles mentioned in Mark's gospel. And so it's like he bookends this with his remembrances of his encounters with Jesus. And this was one of them, this fearful storm. And this account was sent to encourage the Christians in Rome while they were in their storm. So this account about the storm was to encourage Christians in their storm, and it's a gift that keeps giving 2,000 years later. And through these verses and through the fear and through the anxiety of this storm, we are able to see the identity of Christ. Through our anxiety, we can see his identity. And that is a gift, something we'd never wish for on ourselves or even our enemies. Christ uses to show us who he is. And, and once we find out who he is, we know then who we are. Anxiety as a lens to see the identity of Jesus. That's where we're going today. Mark 4 begins not with a storm, but with a 
a great teaching experience by Jesus himself. Look at verse 1. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So people were gathering. They were just mesmerized by Jesus, and the crowds were coming and they were there at the shoreline uh, at, at a portion of the Sea of Galilee, so many that Jesus had to get into a boat and back up a little bit so that he could teach to all of them. And that would have been ideal because even in the boat, so the wind comes off the water and sort of amplifies his voice and people are hearing him teach. And Mark records what some of the message content was. Jesus told parables. He told stories about the coming of the kingdom. He told about the parable of the sower, about a sower who sowed seed, and some of the seed fell on hard ground, and, and uh, birds came and snatched it up. And then other seed fell on uh, rocky soil that, that uh, well, the seed sprouted, but in the afternoon heat it withered, and then still other seed fell among soil that, well, it grew, but because it was infested with thorns and weeds, it was choked. But then there was the good soil, the good stuff, like out here. Oh, it flourished, and it grew. And then Jesus, later on, explained what that was about. You don't have to read a commentary to figure out what that parable was about because Jesus said, here's what it means. And, and the seed is the word of the gospel of the kingdom. And when the word goes out, how do people hear God's word? How do people hear the message of the gospel? And, and, and some people, the evil one comes in and snatches the word up quickly. Their hearts are so hard. It's hard pan. And, and so they're, they're, nothing takes root. And then there are those who hear the word. And, but, uh, you know, no, they're enthusiastic at first. But yet when trials come, they wither and nothing flourishes. And still others hear it. But, but because they worry and because they're overcome with what ifs and because they get choked out by anxiety over wealth, why, they don't flourish. Ah, but then there's, there's the soil, of the, the good soil that the word falls on and people hear it and respond and they flourish and they grow and it's just beautiful. That's the parable of the sower. And you can see some of the other parables he told. Look in verse 21. The gospel of the kingdom is like light. And you don't put a, you don't smother or cover light. You just let it shine. And then the gospel of the kingdom is like, is like a seed that just gradually grows. And then there's this mustard seed, this small, tiny little mustard seed. And, and, and when it gets planted and when it flourishes, why, there's, there's this this bush, this huge bush, and birds come in and build nests and subdivisions in this bush, and it's just wonderful and to see all the flourishing that takes place. And Jesus says, that's, that's the parables, stories with intent. Verse 33 says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he didn't speak anything without a parable. And then he explained those to the disciples, the inner circle, the group, the, the 12. All day long this happened. And then we get to verse 35. When evening had come, still in the boat, 
says, let's go to the other side of the lake. Stories told by the king about the kingdom. So the preacher, the herald, the messenger of the kingdom is at one and the same time the king. And so when evening came, King Jesus says, let's go to the other side. Verse 36 says, they took him in the boat just as he was. I take that to mean that they didn't go to the store to pick up supplies or anything else like that. They just said, let's go. Already in the boat. Get in. Let's go. And note the eyewitness detail. It says, and other boats were with him. Eyewitness. Apostle Peter is remembering all of this as they're out there on the sea, the Sea of Galilee, a lake. Now, the Sea of Galilee is, is 700 feet below sea level. We're what? Now, 730, 40 feet above sea level? So right now, where we are, we're 1,400 feet higher than the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is 14 miles north and south, 7 miles at its widest point, east and west. Only about 140 feet deep, though, at its deepest level which means it's kind of like a, a, a tea saucer. You know, you put a little water in that tea saucer and you go, and water's going to blow out everywhere, you see. It's in such a deep valley and wrapped around mountainous cliffs that winds swirl. And, and it's in so, such a low valley that cold air just drops like a brick and out of nowhere, furious squalls cause violent, lethal waves. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. Literally, literally, Mark says that the waves were beating the boat. The, that little boat was a heavy bag, taking body shots. It was an outmatched opponent, uh, uh, leaning against the ropes, the punishing shots from this angry storm. Wave after wave kept Belting it in the kidney and no standing eight counting, no technical knockout, no towel to throw in from the corner. And the boat was taking punches and taking water. And, and this was Peter's account, mind you. Peter's a professional fisherman. He'd been out on that lake before. He'd grown up in that area. Wasn't anything new and unfamiliar. He'd, he'd been on that lake his entire life. But he had not seen this. And Fear flooded that boat. Fear. Fear. Anybody know anything about fear? Fear is a formidable emotion. Fear is our friend when it functions the way God intends it to function. Fear is like a warning light on the dashboard of your car. Fear keeps us from foolish impulsiveness. Fear protects us from danger. Fear reminds us of consequences. Fear reveals who or what we value. Fear can be our friend, but so often fear wants to be our boss. Fear wants supreme authority. Fear has a difficult time trusting. Fear wants protection. Moreover, when fear intensifies, we want relief right now. We don't want relief five minutes from now. We want it right now. Now. And you really can't blame fear for that. But who doesn't want peace and relief? It's just that people in fear often don't know where to go 
or who to turn to. So, so what do you do when your storm causes fear in your heart? And furthermore, when Jesus deliberately sends you into the storm where you feel the fear. That, do you see that? You, you, Jesus, I mean, he knows everything, right? You don't think he didn't know this was coming? He knew this was coming. And yet, he deliberately sent them into the storm. Jesus says, let's go to the other side. And we reply, yes, Lord. And yet, in the middle of our obedience, the storm strikes. You might be asked to lie for your boss, but your integrity causes you to say no. And there's a storm, and you get fired. You're a teacher, and you've got to give a less than stellar report in that parent-teacher conference, and you've got to face a storm of defensive parents. You might have to tell the truth in court about an unethical or illegal practice at work, and that's a storm but it costs you friendship with coworkers. You might get flack from an uninterested spouse about your growing faith and desire for God. You have been disciplined about your diet and your fitness, and yet the labs say something serious. Jesus says, let's go. You say, yes, sir, but before you know it, the sky is dark and the winds are fierce and you're taking in water. So where do you turn to in your fear? Well, look at the disciples. I mean, they turn to Christ. This is good. Christ. What's, a, what's Christ doing here? Verse 38. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. <laughs> They're in deep fear. Jesus is in deep REM. Storms reveal our fears which expose our hearts. And note their question. Not, do you not know? Or, are you not able? Rather, do you not care? They question Christ's character. You're in a stressful storm at work with urgent deadlines and low morale. You feel stuck in a cubicle and it feels like God has more important things to do than to listen to your prayers. Lord, do you not care? You're trying to be smart about money. You ask God for financial help, and the next day the water pump in your car breaks. Lord, do you not care? You send your child on missions trips, and you support all their church activities, yet their heart grows cold to Christ. Lord, do you not care? And notice, verse 38, the first person plural do you not care that we are perishing? We, the 12, the disciples, not the crowd on the shore or the other poor saps in the other boats, but we, us, the first team, the inner circle, the ones who get it. Don't you care that we are perishing? That's a serious thing to accuse Jesus of not caring, don't you think? Well, verse 39 says, he woke up. He woke up. He woke up. He stood up. He stretched. I don't know how you wake up in the morning. 
You know, you wake up like popcorn. Ta-da! You're laughing. That means probably not. Right? You know? Woke up, stood up, stretched. Take care of it. Yawns again. Siopa! Pethimoso! Quiet! Calm down! A creepy silence covered the lake. Christ erased the storm and stilled the sea. Verse 39. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. Notice, he didn't just still the storm. You can still a storm and the waves will still be what? Choppy. <laughs> He stilled the storm, and the sea was as glass. And after rebuking the storm and the sea, he looked to his disciples. Verse 40 Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The disciples, the 12, the future authors of the New Testament, the ones who get it. Have you still no faith? They don't teach us to say verse 40 in preacher school. Okay. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They don't teach us to say that. They teach us to say, um, they're there. Um, I understand. Um, let me pray for you. That's what they teach us to say. I'd be pretty lonely in the fireside room if I greeted people, heard their story, and responded Time after time after time after time after time with, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Huh? Welcome to Windsor Road, by the way. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's what Jesus said. Why did he say that? Now, I mean, we could, we, we really could just stop with, well, he's Jesus and Randy, you're not. No argument there. Okay, I, I, I agree with you. But let's probe. Why did Jesus say that? So, so who do you turn to in your anxiety? I mean, didn't they turn to him? They did. And didn't they ask for help? Yes. You, you told us to seek you. We did. And now you scold us? Why? Well, well think. This is, this is why we talked about what had happened before the storm. All day long, the king 
was talking about the incomparable, unstoppable, invincible kingdom all day long. And yet that very night, he was questioned, don't you care? I mean, you're in the boat with us. If you go down, what's going to happen to the kingdom? So this is beyond personal safety. This is about whether the disciples believe that Jesus can fulfill what has been promised in the scriptures concerning the kingdom. The Lord's prayer says, thy kingdom come. And here the disciples wonder, really? Uh, Is there a person in here who has never wondered whether or not, you know, okay, is this absolute truth or is this just stylistic literature? Now, we read about the popularity of other religions, be it Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Scientology, and when we become self-conscious, you know, are we too intolerant? Or maybe there are many ways to God, and who are we to judge? And maybe heaven is a democracy of deities instead of an absolute theistic Christocentric monarchy. And then the pressure of those external voices choke our faith. It is easy to live your faith when the world is with you. It is challenging when it's not. So if you're feeling anxious about your faith, would you please, would you please consider the most important verse in this passage? Mark chapter 4, verse 35. It's the key verse. You see it? When the king says, let us go across to the other side, he will get you there. He'll get you there. Jesus doesn't promise that you won't have storms. He doesn't even promise that your boat won't sink. There might be a storm. There might be sunshine. There might be a leaky boat. doesn't matter. They could have drowned in that water. And if they had, Christ would have hauled every one of their bodies to shore and brought them back to life. He told them they were going to the other side. And when he says it, he means it. Jesus did not scold his disciples for fearing the storm. He scolded them for fearing the lesser power over the greater power. He scolded them because who or what you believe is most powerful will be master of your thoughts and actions. So the solution is not fear expulsion, rather fear exchange. Their fear was exchanged for great fear. You see that? Great storm, great calm, great fear. Verse 41, they were filled, literally, they feared a great fear and said to one another, who who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who are we dealing with here? Fear exchange occurs through faith. Faith in Christ. Believe Christ. God's promises are yes in Christ. No matter your past, no matter your family, 
of origin. No matter your sin, no matter your weaknesses, no matter your failures, nothing is too hard for Christ. Believe and obey. And their great fear of Christ was not anything like their fear of the storm because their great fear of Christ was not oppressive. It didn't punch them in the kidneys. It lightened their load. It opened possibilities that they'd never imagined. It was a holy fear that led to fierce courage that this God-man had uncontested authority over nature. If the natural and the supernatural world are subject to him, is there anything he can't do? And he's in the boat with them. And he's in the boat with you. Can you believe that? 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, He will sustain you to the end. He will sustain you to the end. Great fear in the one who is Lord of the storm will sustain you to the end. Great fear can sustain you through the storm of your parents' divorce. Great fear can sustain you through your father's 16-year estrangement, followed by mercy, followed by a tender, merciful funeral service. Great fear can lead you through a contentious congregational meeting 27 years ago. Great fear can lead you through the challenges that come when God grows a church of 200 to a church of 1,000. Great fear can sustain you through the storm of cancer and then cancer side effects. Great fear can sustain you through the storm of seeking Christ's will for his church where Sunday morning might no longer be the most segregated hour in America, where we, the redeemed and elect nations and ethnicities, gather in community and worship for no other reason than King Jesus. And all of the great fear that everyone feels as we explore what it means to love Christ together. Great fear is not your enemy. It's a lens through which to see the identity of the king who is in the boat. What I'm trying to say, brothers and sisters, is that if your boat is in a storm and you're with the Lord of the storm, you're going to be fine. This world is the safest place to be if you're in Christ. Now, do you believe that? And when our king sustains us through the storm, it's not just for us. <laughs> the storms come so that you can get to people on the other side of the storm. That's Mark 5. There, there's a demon-possessed man with a, a legion of evil, wicked spirits taking up residence in his soul. And that demon-possessed man is waiting for Jesus. God has a purpose for another person after the storm, not just a purpose for you. It's not just about you and your anxiety. It's about the others who are waiting to hear the mercy of God. 
Because when Jesus healed that demoniac, that, that whole man begged Christ, let me go with you. And Jesus said, no. You go home to your friends and you tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And you think this is the only storm the disciples faced? In the book of Acts, the same disciples were verbally abused and physically beaten for Jesus. And Acts 5.41 says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And what happens is, you get used to storms. You get used to soggy weather and high waves. You get used to it, and you realize that it's not so bad. And the reason why it's not so bad is because your safety is not in your separation from the storms. Your safety is in your connection to the Lord of the storm. So I close with words from Pastor Alan Redpath who said there is nothing, no circumstance, no trial, no storm that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. And if it's come that far, it's come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment, but as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift my eyes to him and accept that it's coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart, no sorrow will ever disturb me. No trial will ever disarm me. No storm will cause me to fret for I shall rest in the joy of who my Lord is. Amen.